What is going on, guys? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. This is your host, as always, Corey Caesar. It's Saturday, August 18th, 2018. It's another beautiful Saturday. I actually recorded this on Friday, but this is uh, episode 10. Um, it's the first serial killer edition. It's Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. I'm basically just going to chronologize um, his early life through his crime spree and then through the, the court drama. And I went a little long, guys. I apologize. I went like two hours. Um, I was going to do like a two-part episode, like do his crime spree and whatnot, and then break up the court in the second. But fuck it. Who cares, guys? I'm just going to throw it out to you guys. Um, we're going to be doing these every couple couple months. If it's too long, let me know. Send me a message. Say, dude, it's, it's a little too long for me. I don't want to listen to you talk for two hours. Um, and I'll try to shorten those to like an hour. But... Other than that, man, I just want to get right into it. Um, let's go ahead and f- like and follow and subscribe those social media uh, platforms, the Instagram and the Facebook, Chromatic Distortion. Just search it. Make sure you subscribe to whatever pl- uh, podcast format you are also listening to this on. Guys, we hit the 450, uh, 450 listener mark today, and I really appreciate that. Uh, that means people are listening. People are going back and listening, which is nice. Those numbers keep increasing on those earlier episodes. And I really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's just knock this bitch out and let's let's uh, do it. This is Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. This is episode 10, Serial Killer Edition, Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. Too scared to turn your understand Richard Ramirez and his passion for the devil, we need to examine more than just his life. We must also look at the times. Ramirez committed his murder spree in 1985, just one year. In the midst of the satanic panics that swept the country throughout the decade, if you didn't know, the 80s were crazy. Anxiety over Satanists and evil conspiracies mounted on a cultural scale and narratives told by people in therapy about ritual abuse by secret satanic rings showed many common elements and no evidence, like the witch trials. Whole masses of people developed similar physical symptoms that were primarily emotional in origin, 
and the idea of ritual abuse was heavily promoted by journalists, therapists, physicians, drug companies were throwing it out there, and whoever else might just uh, find some stake, uh, some stake in them. Serial killers, too, adopted these satanic robes. During the decade, Robert Berdella killed six men in Missouri for satanic purposes. This dude, Anton Costa, killed four women in Cape Cod in some rituals. Thomas Creech, you know, not to be confused with Saved by the Bell Screech, admitted to 47 satanic sacrifices. And Larry Eller buried four of his 23 victims under a barn marked with that, you know, that inverted pentagram. Nurse Donald Harvey, that dude, that dude was suspected in deaths of 47 patients, admitted to a fascination with black magic. And Leonard Lake, who had teamed up with Charles Ng, who is actually on the short list for the next showcase here, Charles Ng, uh, they committed a series of torture murders. And uh, they were uh, was also affiliated with a coven of witches. One killer targeted homeless men, ringing his victims with a circle of salt. A teenager who wanted to follow the devil murdered his parents in their bed. Also during the 80s, a former associate of John Wayne Gacy, you may have heard of him, named Robin Gett, I think that's how you say his name. I'm not real sure on that guy, guys. G-E-C-H-T. Uh, inspired a group of three other men known as the Ripper Crew in killing an estimated 18 women. They would murder a victim, sever their, less, uh, their left breast with a thin wire, clean it out to use for, wait for it, sexual gratification. And then cut it into pieces to eat. Craziness. They were uh, they were worshiping Satan, and eating the flesh was a form of demonic communion, kind of like eating that cracker, drinking that wine, the blood in the body. The Night Stalker had the same devilish persuasion. He crept up in the night dressed in black, and entered homes surreptitiously. Sometimes he removed the eyes of his victims as if for a ritual. He bludgeoned two elderly sisters and left satanic symbols on the thighs of one who died in the form of a pentagram. He also drew pentagrams on walls and lipstick. When he was arrested, Ramirez said he was a minion of Satan sent to commit the Dark One's dirty work. He was born in El Paso, Texas in 1960, the youngest of five children. He was a quiet dude, according to his neighbors, with some uh, hard-working parents, apparently. However, his father had that temper and liked to beat his kids, which was pretty big back then. The model of abuse in the form of a parent, you know, can often be a bad start for a child, uh, especially a boy watching his father. And possibly some abuse from a male teacher. And Richard had some role models 
who demonstrated how to use others for their own frustrated ends. And Richard Ramirez was afraid of his father. And he would uh, leave home and actually hang out in a nearby cemetery. And would sometimes even spend the night. He apparently uh, found peace among the dead. And may have been where he first developed his uh, attraction to the macabre. Uh, this forensic uh, psychologist, Dr. N.G. Barrel, pointed out that a means for getting over one's fear is to identify with what's frightening you. One way to do that is to become a frightening person yourself. More than one criminal has become the very thing that scared them, turning a victim into victimizer. Yet Ramirez would take this transformation another step. It would become more than just frightening people. He would want to mutilate them, degrade them, and radiate their fear in larger ripples at others. Ramirez also suffered from epileptic, epileptic seizures, Possibly, uh, maybe even he was from the South, maybe uh, South Texas, maybe viewed as a weakness because uh, it forced him uh, to give up football and he kind of became a loner at school. He was thin, kind of girlish in appearance, so he was ridiculed. Yet he had ambitions to become famous and sometimes that ambition for fame turns into Ambition for being infamous. So he wanted people to know him. He wanted to make a difference. He looked up to an older cousin named Mike, who may have become something of a father's substitute for Richard. Mike loved to prove how tough he was, especially in fighting them violent guy and as Richard hung out with him absorbing Mike's philosophies he learned a new outlook see Mike was in the rigors of Vietnam and when he returned even more hardened and covered in tattoos he became larger than life in Richard's eyes now Richard's like 10, 11, 12, 13 at this time Mike bragged that he had raped and murdered a number of women. And he even had the Polaroids to prove it. While Richard may have been shocked at first, he eventually started getting used to such sights, especially since it was important to show Mike that he could handle it. And Mike might have been testing a young Richard, who was not yet an adolescent. But Richard was up to the test. He took it in. He actually wanted more of it. He saw how his idol could do these things without a qualm. No doubt got excited by the naked women in sexual positions and probably learned that women could be easily used as objects for uh, degradation. It was uh, all part of being a real man to him. Yet it was also forbidden, which gave Mike's macho, uh, macho realm 
and added a allure to him. And he also taught them the art of hunting as a predator. They would go into the uh, desert at night to observe and sneak up on animals. And then he would show them how to kill an animal with a knife or a gun. And they indulged in some bloody aspects of the sport, like mutilation of animals. As Richard got older, about 13, Mike became his role model. And whatever Mike did without fear, Richard wanted to do. And that set him up for one more incident that would um, prove everything that Mike had demonstrated thus far to Richard, that it was real. Uh, one day, Mike got in a fight with his wife, who wanted him to get a job because he wasn't working. He was just doing drugs with uh, with his little cousin, just hanging out, going hunting, mutilating them animals. And... Uh, he decided to end her harassment. So he pulled out a revolver right in front of a young Richard and shot her. Then told him to get out, like just to leave. And only for that crime, his cousin Mike went to a mental institution only. Judged to have been temporarily insane. Yet, right after the incident, Richard went into the home with his father and saw and smelled that blood. And he felt a connection with the dead, is what he later confessed to author Philip Carlo, and that it bordered the line on the mystical. That's how he felt about that incident. That he felt a connection with it, and it uh, borderlined on the mystical. Eventually, after this, Richard discovered the Church of Satan. And that seemed to draw all his threads of his temperament together in the right way. The themes of dominance, control, and power called to him. And did the idea of something sacred, even if it was evil. All this might have made him able to erase his feelings of weakness. He often drew the five-point pentagram, the symbol of the devil, on his own body, and even at his trial, which we'll get into, would shout, Hail Satan, in open court. He was a big fan of rock bands who sang about Satanism. ACDC's album Highway to Hell was Ramirez's absolute favorite. One song on that album, Night Prowler, contains the lyrics, Was that noise outside your window? Was that shadow on the blind? As you lie there naked like a body in a tomb? Suspended animation as I slip into your room. And that was his motto, as you'll find out. So then when he was 18, he moved to California. This is a few years after uh, he saw his cousin's wife murdered. He had nothing much to do there though, so he like just stole cars and listened to music, more satanic music, and looked for whatever opportunities he could, whatever they may be. He would steal without compunction and 
just buy drugs. His diet was actually so rich in sugar that his teeth started to rot, which became one of his signatures also in his murders. And that made his breath foul and offensive. But that also fit in with this demonic personality he was intentionally cultivating. He still saw something that might make him significant. And he had perceived in the culture that was around him. As we talked about, the 80s with the Satan worship. And he was not far from where teachers had been arrested in 1983 at the McMartin Preschool and accused of a ring of Satanists corrupting children. And that people were afraid of Satan. and He wanted to be scary. And to him, that probably meant that aligning himself with the Prince of Darkness would empower him in this unique way. And that people would, like I said, fear him. So he cultivated the trappings of Satanism that were popular during the 70s and 80s. The pentagrams, the black clothing, the demonic eyes, the stealthy ways, and a pension for the night. He took his cues from the song Night Prowler, which is uh, those lyrics I just quoted to you in that song, noting how the person who made others afraid was a person in control. So, he went on a little murder spree. The police have no evidence that Richard Ramirez killed at any time before he reached Los Angeles. And actually little is known about his activities in the first few years he lived there. No doubt his crimes were escalating though during this period. Simple theft led him into breaking and entering. And eventually he became pretty adept at it. Initially, he stole whatever valuables he could, then quickly left before he was caught. But as he grew more proficient, like most criminals and serial killers do, he grew bolder, staying longer in the houses that he burglarized. Um, he stayed to watch the. Sometimes he stayed and watched the people sleeping in their beds. He took souvenirs particularly items that belonged to the female residents. Like his cousin Mike, he even took photographs that he could relish later. And this no doubt excited him and helped him develop the depraved fantasies that took over his thinking. You know, because he was a pervert. But eventually he felt compelled to do more. The horrible scenes that ran through his mind like a horror movie on a continuous loop weren't satisfying him anymore. You know, they had to emerge from his mind and become a reality. And when he finally crossed that line and started to play out his fantasies, the Night Stalker was born. Whether by conscious decision or inevitable evolution, Ramirez began to insert himself into his depraved fantasies and actively uh, participated in their reenactment for his own gratifications. 
His first known victim was a 79-year-old Glassell Park resident named Jeannie Vincow. On June 28, 1984, she had apparently left a window open. Ramirez simply removed the screen and climbed in. Vincow's son, who lived in the apartment over her ground floor apartment, discovered her body sprawled out on the bed. She had been stabbed repeatedly, and her throat was slashed so savagely she was nearly decapitated. The intruder also ransacked her apartment and took her valuables. Just just a little thief, but got that first murder. And fingerprints were recovered from the windowsill. And the autopsy revealed this pervert uh, did some sexual assault on a 79-year-old woman. The Night Stalker's fantasy had finally become a reality. And it would be eight more months now, which is actually a long time in this guy's uh, career, before he struck again. No doubt Richard Ramirez, like most budding serial killers, fed off the memory of his first victim. Reliving that experience of rape and murder over and over again in his mind. But eventually the mental reenactment of that initial crime uh, wouldn't be as satisfying as it once was. A new experience to replenish that fantasy needed to happen. And on March 17, 1985, at 11.30, 20-year-old 20 uh, 20 Angela Barrios was returning home from work. And she lived in like a condo. And she shared it with her roommate, with a roommate. And it was in Rosemead, which is like a little middle-class town northeast of Los Angeles. So she like pulled her car up in the driveway and opened the garage and went in. As she got out of her car, though, she heard something behind her and a dark figure suddenly rushed up to her. And this figure was in all black and a navy blue baseball cap. And he was holding a gun. He pointed the gun in her face and shot her. Angela collapsed on the concrete floor, alive. He stepped over her and went in the door that led to her condo. Angela laid perfectly still, playing dead. You want to hear some lucky ass shit. So, her keys were still in her hand. And she raised her hands instinctively when he shot her. And this bullet, like a movie, miraculously hit the keys, bruh, and ricocheted away. So even more lucky, she gets to her feet, right? And uh, she started to run out of the garage when she heard another gunshot behind her. Behind her. She kept running. But she ran into homie 
as he was coming out the front door of the condo. And she tried to get away, but her legs, I mean, she was just kind of like half shot. Um, She stumbled back towards her car in the garage. And she thought, obviously, that he was going to just shoot her again. But instead of pursuing her, uh, the man shoved a gun into his belt and just fled. Her roommate, Dale Okazaki, age 34, wasn't so lucky. And Angela found her face down on the kitchen floor with blood everywhere on the walls, furniture, appliances. And she was shot in the forehead. And when the police got there, searched the crime scene, they found homie's uh, baseball cap in the garage. So the first signs of sloppiness. What exactly happened inside the condominium is unknown. But for some reason, killing Dale Okazaki was not the experience that he had hoped for. Because incredibly that same night, he struck again in a nearby Monterey Park. Now, he kills somebody, shoots one person, they see him, and he's like, fuck it. I'm going to go kill somebody else. So the police were called to investigate basically an empty yellow uh, Chevrolet parked with the car running, with the motor running still. And even crazier or weirder was the transmission was in reverse. The car was in reverse. And the car parked behind it was keeping it from going backwards more. So like someone just stopped it with their car. The 1980 steel, boy. And when the officer got out of his patrol car to check inside of it, he found an unconscious woman laying on the ground nearby. Her stockings were ripped, and there was like this big bruise on her leg. But she was still alive, like Angela, but barely. And he ran back to his car to call for some uh, for an ambulance. When he returned to the woman, uh, he discovered that she had been shot several times. And this woman was a 30, uh, a 30 year old Taiwanese native named, I'm going to butcher this name, guys, Tasia Lian Yu, uh, who was known to her friends as Victoria. And she died before the ambulance arrived. So the Night Stalker was in a little frenzy. He killed uh, that Dale. Okazaki, which had not satisfied his need. And then on the spur of a moment, he attacked this Tasia Leon Yu, a.k.a. Victoria. But murdering and assaulting, uh, assaulting her uh, might not have done it for him either. Because three days later, he murdered a little eight-year-old girl in... Eagle Rock, California. So he's doing the whole spectrum here. Like this old lady 
that 20-year-old, and now some 30-year-olds, and then goes down to this little 8-year-old girl. And then a week later, on March um, 27, 1984, he emerged again. And this time, he found an M.O. that uh, worked for him, that got his, uh, his, his little dick hard. On the morning of March 27th, this is still 1984, Peter Zazazara, that's a weird name, it's Z-A-Z-Z-A-R-A, Zazara, it's a cool name, I kind of like it. Uh, uh, he arrived at his uh, parents' home, though, in Whitier, California. Make a joke about that, guys. Um, his four, uh, his sixty-four-year-old father, Vincent, um, who was uh, retired from like some invest uh, investment counseling, but uh, owned and operated like this uh, a pizzeria, and then his mother, Maxine, forty-four. So man, I mean, sixty-four and his his mom, forty-four. Good for you, bro. Um, and she was an attorney, so she was smart too. So really good for you. And uh, Peter rang that doorbell several times, but no one answered. So like most kids who have a key, just let himself in, and found something pretty horrifying. His father's body was on the sofa in a den. And he had been shot through the left temple and had appeared to have died <clears throat> pretty instantly. Now, Miss Zazara was found stretched out on the bed, face up and naked. And her eyes had been gouged out. And the bloody sockets empty. She'd been stabbed repeatedly around the face, neck, abdomen, and the groin. And also, there was like a, a large um, T-shaped knife wound in her left breast. And then the subsequent autopsy later revealed that, like her husband though, she had been shot in the head and probably died instantly. And they believe the stabbings, and thank God, and the stabbings and the mutilations were done post-mortem. And like the other motives, you know, the house had been ransacked with the valuables taken. So that was kind of his M.O. now is, um, you know, he likes to break in, do a little robbery. And then he started killing people. But now he's finding these couples and shot the man right away and then went on to the woman. So with these killings... uh. Richard Ramirez had discovered a method that kind of accomplished his goals and satisfied his fantasies. And that was, like I said, dispatch of the mail quickly to get him out of the way so they could have his little perverse way with uh, the women of the house. And the man was just like an impediment and not really part of his fantasy. And so the woman was basically the real object of his desire and six weeks later homie returned to Monterey Park he liked it there and uh, broke into the home of 
Harold and Gene Wu. Now, you've also noted a lot of these names are of the Asian persuasion. Just like those photos that he was seeing from his cousin, Mike. And he woke them up from a sound sleep. The Night Stalker. At night. So Ramirez took care of Mr. Wu first again. Shooting uh, the 66-year-old man through the head. And then he pummeled Miss Wu, who was 63, viciously with his fist. So now he's beating them with fists, demanding to know where she kept her money. Then he tied her hands together behind her back with some thumb cuffs. Now I don't even know what that means, but that's just what it said in the story I read. Thumb cuffs. To keep her still as he robbed this house. And then after he found what he wanted, uh, he returned to the bedroom and dragged her to the side of the bed and raped her. And this time, though, when he finished, he just left. And he just left her alive for some reason. Again, he's super, like, kind of amateurish and sloppy, but super bold. And it's just kind of it's just kind of weird. And Mr. Wu, however, also wasn't dead, despite his terrible head wound. He managed to crawl to the den where he dialed 911. But he was unable to tell the dispatcher what the problem was. But you know that even back in the 80s, they could trace that call. And I did that one time. I called 911 on accident. And they showed up. Sorry, Dad. But uh, he was rushed to the hospital after they showed up. And unfortunately, died later that night. Now, Jean Wu was just treated for her injuries. And she was also, because, you know, she was alive, was able to give the police a physical description of her attacker. So, uh, they had a hat, you know, in that description. It's two weeks later now, on May 30th. So, he's just, like, going crazy here, guys. This is, like, one every couple weeks here. Sometimes, like, we, you know, that one day, two in a day. Um... Ruth Wilson, 41, was awakened in the middle of the night by a flashlight shining in her face. So he went from shooting him right away, now he's waking him up. And he just snuck in silently, and this was taking place in Burbank, and then was holding that gun to her head. And he ordered her to get out of bed and go uh, to her 12-year-old son's room. Now, Ramirez jumped on the boy's bed and put the gun to the child's head, warning Ruth not to make a sound. And as a sign of a little bit of decency, just handcuffed the boy and locked him in a closet and told her, don't look at me. If you look at me again, I'll shoot you. So he didn't want to be looked at. And she just assumed uh, he was a burglar. So she offered to give him her most valuable possession, which was this gold and diamond necklace. So she took him to the bedroom, uh, to the dresser where she kept it, and just 
hoped that that would placate him, but it didn't. And after rummaging through the house, he ordered her to turn around and put her hands together. So here he goes again with the tying up. You know, he tied her up um, with her hands behind her back with a pair of pantyhose. And then uh, shoved her onto the bed, you know, and raped her and sodomized her. And here's where those teeth came into effect. So his breath was so hot and foul as he lay on her that she nearly gagged. And that was that halitosis from that diet we talked about at the very beginning. And according to this dude Clifford uh, Lindecker in a book he wrote, Night Stalker, Ruth told Ramirez that he must have had a very unhappy life to have done this to her. And this guy was like, well, you look pretty good for your age. So he was going to let her live, even though he had killed many others. So here he is admitting to some murders and just telling her he's going to let her live simply because she looks good for her age. And even when she complained about the pantyhose around her uh, wrist um, being too tight and cut off her circulation, he even loosened up for her and brought her a robe before taking her son out of the closet and then just handcuffed him side by side and left. And when police later uh, came to the scene after they got out, Ruth described her attacker and she basically, so here's the second description, told him, uh, told them that it was a, just a tall Hispanic with long, dark hair. Now, these attacks continued um, throwing the city of Los Angeles you know, into a state of panic. And one police official referred to the killer rapist as the Valley Intruder. But the newspapers dubbed him um, the Night Stalker, conjuring up images of a modern-day Dracula or Jack the Ripper. But Ramirez was just getting started. And I mean that. And in the spring of 1985, he was going through a little period of escalation. By the summer, homie was in full-blown rampage. And on May 29th, Malvia Keller, who was 83, going back to them old girls, and her sister Blanche Wolf, 80, were found in Keller's Monrovia home. Now, both women had been beaten so severely with a hammer, guys, that when the police found it, the handle was split. Now, what's crazy is Blanche had a puncture wound above one ear and an inverted pentagram with the tip pointing down had been drawn in lipstick on Melvia's inner thigh. And then a second pentagram was found on the bedroom wall over uh, the Blanche's comatose body. And apparently Ramirez had tried to rape uh, Malvia, the older sister, the 83-year-old woman. Um, and police experts estimate that 
Um, the sisters had been there about two days after the attack before being discovered. And what was crazy is the doctors were able to re- revive Blanche, but Malvia soon died of her injury. So these 80-year-old strong-ass women, dude, got beat so severely with a hammer that it crushed uh, it split the handle. The wood handle split it. And then they both live um, for two days, guys, before anyone discovers them. So no food, no water, beaten with a hammer, severely and bleeding. And these this 83 and 80-year-old women with just the will to survive. Uh, at least one makes it and the other one dies soon later. But even to get that far is a miracle and a testament to how strong those women were. So then one month later, on June 27th, the newly deemed Night Stalker switched it up and went to the whole other end of the spectrum and raped a little six-year-old girl in Arcadia. And then a day later, the body of 32-year-old Patty Elaine Higgins was found in her Arcadia home with her throat slit. And five days later, like I said, the dude's going on a tear. Uh, July 2nd, the body of 75, and he's all over the spectrum, year old Mary Louise Cannon was found in her Arcadia home. And like Patty Higgins, she had been beaten and her throat slit. Plus the house was ransacked. It's normal MO, but... The ages were just all over the fucking map, man. And then on July 5th, uh, he goes back to that Arcadia beat. He liked that Arcadia beat for a second, man. He was feeling something there. Uh, 16-year-old Deidre uh, Palmer, he fucking beat her savagely with a tire iron. But she survived the injury. So this dude was not good at really killing people. He just did a lot of it. He let... He like, he just, he wasn't a finisher, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. It's so weird. And then two days later, on this tear, July 7th, the body of Joyce Lucille Nelson was found in her home, but he moved up and, and he went to uh, back to Monterey Park. And the 61-year-old had been beaten to death with a blunt object, so he was liking this beating thing now instead of just the shooting. And then later that same night, guys, same night, another doubler in that same park, uh, Linda uh, Fortuna, a 63-year-old registered nurse, she was awakened at like 3.30 a.m. in the morning by this tall, bony dude dressed in black who we know is the Night Stalker, but she didn't know that. And this man who fit the description of the Night Stalker was pointing a gun at her. And he ordered her out of bed and into the bathroom, wanting, uh, warning her to be quiet. And after he did his normal thing of stealing, he returned to her and attempted to rape and sodomize her, but homie couldn't maintain an erection. You know, they didn't have Cialis and Viagra in the 80s. It had to be all natural, guys. Um, and I guess he started like screaming at her because you know he felt inferior probably because he couldn't get hard 
and then just gathered up all the valuables he wanted and dipped. And then about a week and a half later, on July 20th, the Night Stalker chose a new location, though, this time in the Los Angeles area, Glendale. And Max and Neeling and his wife, Leela, who were both 66, were found in their bed, both shot in the head. Now he's back to the shooting thing. And horribly slashed with a knife. He's mixing it up, doing both. Having himself a little blizzard. And Maxon had been butchered so brutally, his head was barely attached to his body. And police experts actually had difficulty recreating the attack based on the evidence. It's possible, they think, that they both died quickly with his gun, and then he did that that mutilation post-mortem like he did um, a few months back. But given his developing MO, it's also possible that he kept, you know, misneeling alive to play out that perverse fantasy. But he also may have failed to perform sexually with Miss Keeling just as he had with Linda Fortuna. You know, because like I said, man, he needed that Viagra, boy. And so this time he turned July 20th again into another doubleheader. This time in Sun Valley. Um, Shitat, I swear to God, guys. This is a real name. And I'm going to spell it for you because I know you guys don't believe me when I'm going to say this. You think this is a joke. This is real. And I, I hate to make fun, I make fun of it. Uh, I don't like to make jokes about the dead, but you got to lighten it up a little bit here, even on these. This name is, and I don't know if it's a it's a hit, it's a him, it's a, it's a him. Shitat Asawahem, bro. Shitat Asawahem. Spelled C H I. T-A-T, Shatat, A-S-S-A-W-A-H-E-M, Asawahem, Shatat Asawahem. That's my best pronunciation. I believe it's correct. I'm decent at pronouncing words. 32 was shot in his sleep. Uh, And his wife, Sakima, 29, was raped. And forced this time, the first time he did it, um, to perform oral sex on the intruder. Then beaten uh, mercilessly. He then was, must have been so frustrated, unfortunately, ended up sodomizing the couple's eight-year-old boy. Um, So this is the first opposite gender, I believe. And uh, Ramirez tied... Miss Asawahim um, in her bedroom and left. But they had through 30 grand in cash and jewelry, so he got a little lick out of it. And then on August 6th, he targeted another couple, Christopher and Virginia Peterson. So he's now he's back on this younger age because I don't think them older older women were doing it for him too much anymore. Um, and, and Christopher and Virginia Peterson were 38 and 27. So following his pattern, Ramirez broke into the Peterson Northridge bedroom and shot them both in the head. But 
again, they didn't die. And in fact, Mr. Peterson, this powerful fucking built Hulk truck driver, got out of the bed and chased this dude uh, away, bro. Despite having a bullet lodged in his brain. What a gangster. I want to meet that dude. I want to shake that dude's hand. And miraculously, both these uh, people, the uh, Pearsons, survive. And two, na- uh, two nights later, um, Ramirez lashed out once again. Like, again, back to back to back to back. Dude, just going. This is, guys, we're still in the same year here. You realize that I've been talking for a minute. We're in the same year, 1985. This is still happening in 1985. All right. Um, this time he's at uh, in Diamond Bar, California, and that's not that's not a name of an uh, of a strip club, guys. That's a city, Diamond Bar, California. And this time, though, he had his way, because remember. He got chased away by fucking Hulk. And this time he targeted Ahmed Zia, 35. And um, he was shot in the head and killed while he slept. And once again, with the husband out of the way, Ramirez was free to play out his fantasy with Zia's wife, Sukai Zia, who was 28. And... He did his thing again, raped her sodomizer. That seems to be his new MO here. And again, um, he was finding that he was liking that uh, fellatio also. And so this was, like I said, Ramirez's MO played out just the way he liked it. And the experts who were profiling him now believed that this was the way he would begin to attack again and again, probably adding just a little something more each time, which he has been doing. He's been progressing. He has that one little tweak and a new perversion or a little uh, a new twist on that old um, predilection, bro. And most likely, he would start increasing that physical brutality. And he was. He started with just that, that little gunshot to the, the beatings. And at this time, Los Angeles County was terrified. And the Night Stalker's crimes were becoming more frequent. The cooling off periods were shortening. And, like we just mentioned, his rage was escalating. And there was little doubt that he would strike again. And the only question was where and when because he was all over the place. And they really couldn't target down like a demographic. Like, um, who is he targeting? We just know couples pretty much. And uh, it turned out that he got a little bit smart and decided he was going to abandon his familiar territory after he attacked the Zaz and ended up going north up to that uh, San Francisco area. And on August 18th, 1985, Peter and Barbara Pan, dude's name is Peter Pan, guys, Lost Boy. Uh, they were found in their blood-soaked bed in Lake Merced, which is actually sub a suburb of San Francisco. And both had been shot in the head. Mr. Pan, who was 66 years old, uh, 
was pronounced dead at the scene. Miss Pan 64 survived, but uh, would be invalid for the rest of her life. Now, invalid means a person may weak or disabled due to sickness or injury. All right, guys, that's straight from dictionary.com if you didn't know what invalid means. And scrawled on the wall in lipstick, again, was this inverted pentagram. This time with the words, Jack the Knife, which is from a song called The Ripper by a heavy metal band, Judas Priest. Local police determined that he had come in through an open window. Again, likes that window. Keep your windows locked, guys. That's how the perverts get in. If you haven't noticed that, that's been a recurring theme forever. And fearing that L.A.'s Night Stalker had moved to their precinct, homicide investigators uh, sent out this bullet that was removed from Mr. Peter Pan to forensic team in Los Angeles. Now this bullet matched others recovered from two of the Night Stalker's Los Angeles County crime scenes. Now police in San Francisco, they searched their unsolved homicide files at this point and came up with two incidents that fit uh, his M.O. And on February 20th, 1985, sisters Mary Christine Caldwell, ages 70 and 50, uh, had been stabbed to death in their Telegraph Hill apartment. If this was indeed the work of the Night Stalker, he had committed his crime uh, about a month before the night he killed Dale Okazaki, if you remember that dude, and Tisalin Yu and wounded Angela Barreros. That's that lucky girl with the keys. So it was that night. Um, so they also discovered that on June 2nd, the day after the murders of those elderly sisters, uh, Blanche Wolf and Maliva, remember them, them strong-willed women, those women, um, Theodore Wildings, who was 25, was shot in the head while he slept in his apartment in Cow Hollow section of San Francisco. So his girlfriend Nancy uh, uh, Bryn, 25, was then brutally raped by the killer. So I don't know, could the Night Stalker have been active in San Francisco as well as Los Angeles throughout the 1985? And the police in San Francisco just didn't realize it because that's kind of seems it seems pretty likely when they did this search. So now, because of this, panic spread through the city uh, by the bay, bro. That's San Francisco. Uh, to quell fears, Mayor, and you guys are all going to know this name, Mayor Diane Feinstein, you guys know that crazy lady, uh, talked publicly about the hunt for the Night Stalker. But in doing so, she actually angered these detectives because she gave away too many details of the crime, thus impeding their investigation. They didn't didn't want them to know. You know, they didn't want the killer to know that they knew. And they did not want a repeat of the situation Los Angeles had you know, just gone through. 15, bruh. 15 in this year. 15 unanswered attacks, including 14 murders, 
five rapes have been committed by this maddeningly uh, elusive perpetrator that we've come to know as the Night Stalker. But the San Francisco police, these dudes caught a little break when the manager of a flop house in the Tenderloin District came forward and claimed that a young man who fit the stalker's description had stayed at uh, his establishment from time to time over the past year and a half. Now, this manager remembers him because the man had those rotten teeth and smelled badly, which has been what these surviving witnesses have been saying about him. That halitosis, bro. And uh, the police checked the room they last stayed in. And this sloppy dude on the bathroom door, he just couldn't help himself and they found a, a drawn pentagram. You know, like the pentagrams he's been leaving at all these crime scenes. And the man, who we know as the Night Stalker, but they didn't know, had checked out during the day uh, on August 17th. And Miss and Miss Pan had been attacked that night. So he was there. Investigators then located a man from El Sobrante district who said he had purchased some jewelry. And this jewelry just happened to be a diamond ring and a pair of cufflinks from a young man who fit to this uh the dude's description, you know, the bad teeth, the Hispanic, the the hair. And further investigation revealed that these items had belonged to Mr. Pan. So on August 24th, while the police in San Francisco were scrambling to find the mysterious young man with rotten teeth, the boy, the Night Stalker, had found himself another couple who he could use to play out that violent fantasy he was liking so much. Except this couple was not from the Bay uh, Area. They were asleep in bed in Mission Vejo, 50 miles south of Los Angeles. And a computer engineer, his 29-year-old fiance, had just fell asleep when they were like all these people suddenly awakened by loud gunshots in the room. Now, instinctively, she reached out for her fiancé, but like we know, he had already been seriously wounded. Now, Ramirez grabbed her by the hair and hauled her into another bedroom where he tied her ankles and wrists with some neckties. Then dude asked her if she knew who he was. So here he is. Remember how I started this thing in the uh, beginning, saying how he wanted to be famous or infamous? And uh, admitted to her that he was the killer that was getting all the coverage in the press and on the television. So he rummaged through her house, you know, looking for them valuables. But there was nothing small enough to steal easily. That angered him. So anger, angrily, uh, 
so angered that the couple had so little, uh, he returned to her and raped her. Not once this time, guys, but twice. And the horrible stink of his breath, like these other ladies, made her gag. It's the recurring theme. I just remember those rotten teeth. He was still angry at this point that there was nothing worth stealing. And afraid of what he might do next, she told him to go ahead and look in this drawer where she knew her fiancé kept some money. He told her to swear to Satan. So she did. I mean, why wouldn't you? And uh, he wanted her to swear to Satan that she was telling the truth. He found the money, and as he counted it, he like mocked her a little bit, telling her that uh, this was what she was worth. And it was what saved her, that little bit of money. But he wasn't through with her yet. Now he wanted her to swear uh, her love for Satan. And he demanded it. And he ordered her to say it again and again. And he yanked her by the hair and made her kneel. And back to that uh, the thing he was liking, performed that oral sex on him. And when he was finished, he stepped back and stared at her. And, you know, she was still bound by the neckties. And she thought, because like all these other people, he was going to shoot her. And um, he didn't. He just laughed at her. And then suddenly was gone. Like a thief in the night. So she worked herself free and uh, went to the window and just happened to get... um, a little view of him getting in this orange-colored Toyota station wagon. And she immediately called 911. Now, earlier that night, a teenager who had been working on his motorcycle in his parents' garage had noticed uh, this orange Toyota also driving in the neighborhood. And he noticed it again as it was leaving. It struck him as suspicious. So he jotted down the license plate number. And then, I mean, how suspicious did you really think it was? I mean, I guess you wrote the number down, but he didn't call the police uh, until the next morning. Now, when the plate number, uh, with that plate number, the police were able to determine that that 1976 orange Toyota had been stolen in L.A.'s Chinatown while the owner was dining at a restaurant. An alert was put out for this car. And it was actually located two days later um, in the Rampart section of Los Angeles. Now, I don't know where that's at, but that's where he was. And the police kept this car under surveillance for like 24 hours. They stuck it out. They staked it out. Did a little stakeout. And they hoped that, you know, dude would return for it, but he didn't, which I'm surprised because... We've been finding out dude's been pretty sloppy, so I'm surprised he did not go back for this car. He must have, I bet you he, I bet you he saw him or something like tipped him off, something got a little suspicious, something spooked him. So then that forensic team scoured this car for some evidence and came up with one good fingerprint, which they sent to Sacramento for analysis. And it only took a few hours before the, uh, 
computer found a match, and that print belonged to Ricardo Richard Leva Ramirez, who we've come to know as the Night Stalker. Now, further analysis revealed that this print matched a print taken from a window still at, you guessed it, the Pan's house near San Francisco. And at long last, the police knew who their suspect was. Now they just had to find him before he struck again. So seven days after the attack uh, on that computer engineer and his fiance, um, where they found that car, where they saw him get in that car, um, he was on the prowl again, though, now for another vehicle he could steal. Unfortunately for him, uh, he chose the wrong neighborhood to go shopping for cars. This wasn't your normal uh, run-of-the-mill used car lot here, right? Now, his first mistake was trying to steal uh, this dude, Faustino Pignon. Man, you got a name like Faustino Pignon. You a pimp, bro. That's F-A-U-S-T-I-N-O P-I-N-O-N Pignon. Faustino Pignon. Uh, and this dude had a prized well, prize to him, Red Mustang. Now, Ramirez, who was wearing this black Jack Daniels t-shirt, had been hopping fences between yards looking for these cars. Now, searching for a car, uh, he was chased off this property, which was next door to Pignon's home. And by luck, or bad luck, however you want to look at it, uh, he ended up in this Pinon's yard. Now, Ramirez must have thought that this was the good luck, and because uh, this Mustang was parked in the driveway and it was just unlocked, and actually the keys were in the ignition, so he jumped in and just started the engine. But what he didn't notice was that the car's owner was underneath. And this dude was just underneath the car working on it. And as soon as Pignon, who was 56 at the time, uh, heard the engine start, this dude just like instinctively rolled out from under the car like, no. And he was pretty pissed to say the least that anyone would dare touch his prized possession. Pignon reached through the window and grabbed homie by the neck. And we talked about some strong necks and loose necks in a previous episode. I'm pretty sure Richard Ramirez had a loose neck. Now, uh, Ramirez was like, dude, I got a gun. Pignon, being the gangster he is, didn't give a fuck. No one was going to take dude's car. So, Ramirez, now this is also like straight out of a movie, uh, put the car into gear and try to drive away. But dude, my homie Pignon with that fucking vice grip on his neck, on his loose neck, uh, wouldn't let go of him. And this car crashed into a fence and then into the garage. Then Pignon got the door open, hauled Ramirez out, threw him to the ground like, what's up? Ramirez scrambled to his feet and jolted across the street. Just so happened as this 28-year-old uh, Angelina De La Torres 
was getting into her Ford Granada. Google Ford Granada. And he ran up uh, to her car and stuck his head through the driver's window. Demanding that she give up the keys. Dude thinks he's like in bad boys. Like just going to uh, commandeer a car like he a popo. And he threatened her in Spanish uh, uh, that he would kill her if she didn't. And she just started screaming for help. And her husband, Manuel, uh, came running from the backyard. Now, in the meantime, this dude, this is going to get crazy, guys. In the meantime, this dude, Jose uh, Bergon, who had heard this ruckus. Now, remember, he wandered in the wrong neighborhood, guys. Uh, heard this ruckus in homie Faustino Pignon's driveway and was the neighborhood, must have been the neighborhood snitch because he called the police. And he ran out then afterwards to help Pignon. And when he heard Angelina scream, he called for his sons now. This dude, Jamie, 21, and Julio, 17, called the 17-year-old, like, let's go, mount up, regulate us. You know, to come out quick. We about to fight. You know, bring bring the bats. And as the brothers ran to help uh, Miss De La Torres, they saw, you know, what they perceived as this skinny stranger scrambling across the front seat of her car. Now, Jamie recognized him. Jamie was the 21-year-old from the photographs that had been published in the newspaper and broadcast on television. And he yelled out, that's the killer. That's the Night Stalker. So the men made up, like, this. think about the gangster this is. They know this dude's a murderer. And they don't cower. They do the opposite. They made a, uh, a mad dash to catch him. Good for you guys. True Americans. And uh, Ramirez ran for his life which I, I find it's kind of funny it just kind of shows you that he's not really that tough because didn't he ha- he had a gun I mean at least he claimed he had a gun he had to have a gun with him but anyway uh, Manuel De La Torres caught up with him and hit him across the neck with like this uh, three and a half foot metal post he had snatched up from the ground and apparently it was like some kind of fence post and I don't know how he snatched that shot the ground but Maybe dude was a beast. And then uh, Ramirez kept running though. And De La Torres stayed on him. Just whacking him repeatedly with this pole from behind. Now Jamie Bergon caught up with Ramirez also and punched him. Now this made him stumble and uh, he fell but he quickly got up. So just kind of trying to imagine this little scramble. Running from the car. Dude's chasing. Getting hit with a stick. Another dude catches up. Throws a punch. Knocks him out. Not out, but down. He gets back up on his feet real quick. You know? A, 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 a little uh, a wiry dude. He's wily as fuck. You know? And continue running. With both dudes... You know, and this time, uh, the other brother has now caught up also. So, you got De La Torre and then both Burgoyne brothers on his heels. 
And then unexpectedly, Ramirez, like the crazy motherfucker he is, now he stops and he faces them. And he just starts laughing and stuck out his tongue at them, bro. He was playing the part of the madman. I think he thought that was going to scare them away. But these pursuers were only taken back for a slight moment. Then they're like, fuck this dude. And they lunged at him. And homie took off again. And the chase is on. Now finally, about a block away from where this all began, I think dude's running in circles here. Uh, De La Torre swung hard. And connected on his head. And this time, the Night Stalker collapsed to the ground. And Jamie and mm, Jose Bergon uh, closed in on him and just held him down and beat him a little bit uh, until the police arrived. Now, one day after Richard Ramirez's face was made public, it was only one day, guys. He was already in custody and behind bars. But this show was just getting started. Uh, upon his arrest, who, guys, remember, he was only 26. Ramirez was only 26 at this point, man. His uh, frontal cortex um, wasn't even fully fully developed yet or just, or just becoming fully developed. Um, he was charged with 14 murders and 31 other felonies related to that one year crazy one year 1985 murder rape and robbery spree now he also had a 15th murder in san francisco which hung over his head and he also had a potential for a trial in orange county uh for rape and attempted murder now early in the case two public defenders were appointed but he disliked them now another defense attorney came and went before the ramirez family um retained these dudes, Daniel and Arturo Hernandez. Now, they're not related. They just got the same last name. And these dudes have never tried uh, a death penalty case, but had worked together on a few homicide cases. Now, their presentation wasn't helped much when at the arraignment in October 1985, our boy Ramirez flashed that pentagram drawn on the palm of, uh, of his hand as he shouted, Hell, Satan. Now, apparently this kind of behavior uh, raised anxiety levels. Remember, because we talked about how people were scared in the 80s about witchcraft and uh, Satanism. It was a thing. As crazy as that may sound to you, you, you younger guys. Um, so, um, also on occasion, why those anxiety levels rose, um, they had some bad electrical and the courtroom lights suddenly went out. And the deputies were so scared that they drew their pistols, bruh, and told everyone to hit the floor. And then they dragged uh, Ramirez out the courtroom, almost like they thought he had some kind of like satanic magical powers and shut these lights off, and he was going to make his little great escape. Um, so his lawyers, they began this long list of pretrial motions by filing for... You know, obviously the, the normal shit, change of venue, insisting that the adverse publicity in Los Angeles County had infected the entire community, and hence the jury pool, you know, um, 
and they said that he could not receive a fair trial uh, because many many middle class people in the area, you know, already had this image embedded in their uh, consciousness of the Night Stalker breaking into their homes. And in fact, a survey they threw out a survey, man, and it indicated that ninety three percent of three hundred people—that's a good percentage—polled um, had heard about Ramirez, and not only that, um, they believed that he was guilty. So, on January 10th, though, 1987, Judge Dion Morrow said that given the substantial pool of potential jurors in the in the county, it's a big county, um, he did not believe that the argument was sound. And I think he said this is the largest community um, of any court system in the country. So, uh, Ramirez was then led in chains from the courtroom as he grinned at his growing uh, coterie of female supporters. So these women were now throwing themselves at him like a like a little like a little sex slave, bro. They liked him for some reason. Women are crazy, man. And some of these women believed in his innocence. Others just thought he was cute. Now this is with his rotted ass teeth, guys. A murderer, a rapist of old women, of Young children. This is proof you ladies have these crazy ass hard-ons for these bad boys. And it's no matter the flaw. You got them hard clits for these dudes for some reason. But that's another podcast. So in another hearing, uh, Judge Elva Soper uh, granted a request for, uh, for a gag order on both sides. Now we're already in May. And a trial date was set for the end of September. And that ended up proving being highly optimistic. Uh, This case was uh, going to spread into other states and even Mexico, um, seeking witnesses and evidence. And the defense team would also introduce an exhausting round of delays from appeals to -to out-of-town interviews to outright disappearances. The one-do lawyer wouldn't even show up. Now, Ramirez actually testified in pretrial proceedings and clad in a three-piece gray suit, more in a red tie, looking sharp. Uh, he denied that he had spontaneously told this sergeant who arrested him on the August 31st, I did it, you know, you guys got me, the stalker. Now, his lawyer said that the officer had not recorded the statements and they wanted them stricken. But the Superior Court Judge Michael Teenan, who would substantially would end up uh, sitting for the trial, denied the motion. And then later on, this sergeant would later testify that he wrote down what Ramirez had said. And he said it said, of course I did. So what? Shoot me. I deserve to die. And then he hummed the tune called... Nightcrawler, back to that ACDC song with those lyrics creeping in the window, suspended animation. Now, other than that appearance, Ramirez sat through most of his numerous hearings, basically just slouching in his chair, drumming his fingers on the table and bobbing his head as if he was listening to music. 
I mean, he basically seemed oblivious to like the seriousness uh, of these charges. Now, when his lawyers insisted throughout the final months in 1987 that they needed more time to prepare, the trial date was then moved to February. And they even considered buying more time by pursuing uh, the Orange County trial first. So in November, to avoid an extra trial, they just basically were like, fuck it, dude, one murder and one felony count dismissed. And because basically all they had uh, for uh, for that evidence was basically a delayed statement from a witness who had spotted Ramirez like a block from the crime scene. Um, then Judge Teenan uh, also said that he would not allow Ramirez to leave the county, which meant that he couldn't be arraigned in Orange County anyway. So the defense attorneys now needed another ploy. So they prepared to ask for at least six separate trials, bro, to avoid having cases with little good evidence um, become stronger by association with those that had it. And I kind of get it, but, I mean, if you know some of them have really good evidence, some don't, I mean, come on. So now we're already in January, guys. It appeared that this trial would be postponed another six months because this appellate court required that the prosecution team supply these defense attorneys with records of all crimes over a period of six months in Los Angeles County of a quote-unquote similar nature to those of his. Now, this was a move by his lawyers to link some of those that Ramirez was charged with other cases probably, you know, that possibly had other offenders. Now, Prosecutor Phil Haplin called this obviously an, er an erroneous burden. It is kind of, it's six months, bro. Um, for the cops and asked for the court to reconsider. Now, both sides took it to the state Supreme Court and Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's like, dude, we're not even hearing it. So in March, uh, San Francisco's authorities had tentatively linked Ramirez to four homicides, a rape, and 10 burglaries. But since they had no physical evidence in most of these crimes, they had narrowed their focus to one killing, that Peter Pan. We're back to the lost boy. He's been a key in a lot of this, that Peter Pan. Uh, and the one attempted murder of Pan's wife. And the burglary, which actually, remember, yielded the evidence that led to his last name. So they were waiting the conclusion of the L.A. trial to decide on a date. So in July, as the case neared three years, guys, since his arrest, still hasn't been the trial. The Times reported that Ramirez had decided against entering a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, so he's going to fight it. And so the judge ordered jury selection to begin. Now, the paper quoted the judge as estimating that this, and he was pretty accurate, alone would take six to eight months, guys, to get a jury. And that's because uh, um, uh, his lawyers had sought to have now Tillin disqualified based on prejudice against their clients. Um, 
they did not succeed, but once again, they claimed they needed more time now to prepare. Now, impatient with the defense's motions, which were mostly just to suppress evidence, um, and that that evidence was a lot, man. It, it numbered like to nearly 100. That was how many notions, uh, motions they were filing, like 100. So the L.A. County prosecutor, Phil Haplin, finalized his case and just filed the charges. And that um, took the defense by surprise. He claimed he had nearly 1,000 potential witnesses, the prosecution, 1,000 potential witnesses and hundreds of thousands of pages of statements, reports, and photographs. He admitted that this would be one of the most complicated criminal cases he had seen. And he projected a two-year period for the trial. So now we're talking six to eight months on jury selection and then a two-year trial. He's already been three years, guys, since his arrest. And thus far, the case had already cost over a million dollars. And not only it's been so long, one of them witnesses already died. Just like I'm old, guys. Can't wait six years. I was 89 so, in uh, in true defense fashion, they asked for yet another extension. But this time, it was just time to begin. They had enough, man. So on July 21st, 1988, that jury selection finally began. And at the same time, ironically, in Orange County, the jury was also being selected for another serial killer trial of Randy Kraft, accused of killing 16 young men. Now, Judge Teenan decided that they would need 12 jurors and 12 alternates, all of whom had to be impartial, and listen to this crazy, because of how long this was going to take, all of who had to be willing and able to serve for up to two years. Could you imagine getting called into jury duty and they're like probably going to be holding you from your life for two years guys two years I'd be like I'm out man I'd use any excuse I got diabetes got glaucoma can't hear my left ear masturbated too much I'm half blind I mean it's just crazy two years so not only that, carpenters were hired to enlarge the jury box because he figured what, um, in order to get those 12 and 12 that they would have to interview probably about 2,000 people. And it turned out they needed to interview about 1,600 to get themselves 12 jurors and some alternates. Now, this dude, Alan uh, Yoshelson, Y-O-C-H-E-L-S-O-N, Yoshelson, uh, joined Haplin for the prosecution team. And uh, throughout the selection, Haplin and Daniel Hernandez, which was one of the Hernandez lawyers, um, traded so many insults that the judge told them to take their macho posturing into the boxing ring, bro. They're going to Holyfield Tyson it. He's like, just duke it out. He called them both unprofessional. That's the mockery this uh, this court this uh, trial is turning into. And he also 
just assigned a public defender, the dude Ray Clark, to assist Daniel Hernandez since that other Hernandez Arturo, remember I told you, uh, wouldn't even just show up because he seemed inclined just not to be there at times. Like, fuck it. Taking the day off today, guys. Going to the beach. So also, uh, the defense had yet to disclose their strategy. And they still had numerous appeals pending. Particularly one, which was asking to overturn a decision um, by the judge uh, who had refused to remove uh, Tynan from the case. They wanted him, him gone. And Ramirez offered, often choosing, like he did his murders, in that all-black garb. He also began, and this is crazy because the A's, they don't let you do this shit no more, guys. This is unique. They don't let you just wear what you want anymore. Um, he began to don, uh, don sunglasses as part of his mysterious persona. But he kept that shaggy hair throughout, re, uh, just kind of reinforcing his rebellious reputation. And he got more involved in the proceedings. On August 3rd, uh, the LA Times reported that this jail employee had overheard a plan by Ramirez to shoot and kill the prosecutor with a gun that someone was going to like uh, slip him in the courtroom. Man, we going Bonnie and Clyde here, bro. Like, give me that gun, dude. So, because again, this is the 80s and they didn't have this back then. A metal detector was installed outside the courtroom and even the lawyers were searched. And Ramirez seemed a little bit surprised. And no gun was ever found, though. So I think it was... Yeah, he might have just been just, just saying it to say it. Or the, 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 the jailer dude didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. Now, so finally, you guys, after several months of jury selection, we got that 12 with alternates. And then um, one juror off the bat gets dismissed for making... Uh, racially biased statements about the death penalty. Now, I don't know what that means, but I, I can kind of guess, but I'm not going to say it. So in uh, January 1989, a state appeals court just so happens to find that Daniel Hernandez, the, you know, that unprofessional guy, deficient in presenting another client in an earlier murder trial. Now, reportedly, this Hernandez dude wasn't even surprised by decision. That just tells you how fucking trash he thinks of himself. You know, he's a trashy lawyer. And he also had this record for seeking delays for medical conditions caused by stress. Dude can't handle his job. No one really knew why the family had hired such an inexperienced attorney. Um, and dude just kept continually to seek delays. Now, by the end of the month, January 30th, no more no more delays, man. The trial began with Haplin, the prosecutor's two-hour opening statement about the 13 murders and the 30 felony charges. Now, he intended to introduce at least 400 exhibits of evidence against Richard Ramirez, including fingerprints, ballistic evidence, and shoe impressions, uh, one of which had uh, been on the face of one of his victims, put that foot on it. On the same day, the Times reported that in jail in 1985, 
Ramirez had referred to himself as a super criminal. Now, I don't know about super criminal. I mean, you're a bold murderer and a rapist, but super criminal? I mean, you're kind of just lucky. And you couldn't even kill that well because you left a lot of people alive on accident. Super criminal's a, a, a little crazy. But he also claimed he loved to kill and had murdered 20 people and said, I love all the blood, all that blood. Now, even more crazy is Hernandez, his lawyer, after this two-hour opening statement by the prosecution, just declined to make an open statement at this stage. And his strategy strategy still remained veiled. So he was not releasing the strategy or the defense um, that was going to be employed. And then the case really began. While some witness had um, a little difficult time with some memory recall, because you know, this is four years later already, guys, um, after these crimes had been committed, others were quite certain of their identification of Richard Ramirez. And a few even offered lengthy, uh, lengthy uh, descriptions of their ordeal uh, at his hands. And sometimes while he actually just sat there and leafed through a notebook of bloody crime scene photos. So dude had a, a notebook of crime scene photos. He's just looking through them while these people, mostly women, are testifying about this brutality that he did to them. How fucking crazy is that, guys? So, uh, and then when he was asked, the defendant, Richard Ramirez, uh, to remove those sunglasses, he just said no. And kept him on. Now, Haplin, the prosecutor, used circumstantial evidence to link Ramirez um, with those that shoe print that was left on uh, the scene. And with his appearance in the vicinity of the crimes, with his shifting M.O., and with possession of items removed from the victims or their homes, he also had fingerprints and signature evidence. So on April 14th, after using 137 witnesses, that's a lot of witnesses, guys, 137, and 521 exhibits, they rested their case. But then it had became clear that the defense strategy would just be... Uh, that the eight eyewitnesses, some of whom were survivors, just had, you know, all mistakenly identified Ramirez. That's it. That's their defense, guys. A little case of mistaken identity. And some other guy had just done it all. And then they were granted two weeks to prepare. Now, one hurdle the defense team had to jump was the numerous, obviously, pentagrams left at the crime scene in the car, you know, that one that bore Ramirez's fingerprint, you know, the one he left on the thigh of his victim, you know, the ones that are on Ramirez himself, his palm, you know, the ones he's flashing, and the one he drew, the ones he drew in his cell. You guys remember that? It's been a long podcast, I know. It's too long, tell me. Uh, and this was a little means of linking the crimes, especially since Ramirez was obviously a self-proclaimed Satanist. Now, 
he had forced one surviving victim to swear allegiance to Satan, if you remember, as he assaulted her and shot her husband. Besides the fingerprints and impressive evidence from Avia's shoe, uh, the impression evidence from uh, Avia Shoe, which was allegedly worn by him, though they couldn't find them. Uh, ballistic evidence showed the use of four different guns, one of which was traced to a man who said he had gotten it from Ramirez. So that's what the defense is trying to do here. They're trying to say, look, um, I get it's a pentagram, and he has them, but, and, I, and, and we know he owned these shoes, but you didn't find the shoes. And ballistic evidence shows there were four guns. One wasn't even in his possession. Someone else owned it, but the dude claimed it came from homie. So I get it. It's, a, it's decent, I guess. So the defense actually uh, began their case three weeks later. And on May 9th, and this was in part because on May 2nd, one of the prosecution's witnesses was ordered to retestify. Now that may sound like crazy because... He had admitted to withholding some information while under oath, as he had described jewelry uh, and consumer items linked to victims that he received from Ramirez. But it wasn't that bad because Haplin himself, who was a prosecutor, had un- actually was the one who uncovered the, the deception and said it was uh, not damaging to their case. So he brought it up and was like, let's just get back on the stand, basically, before they find it and then try to, like, Make it look like you're trying to hide it, right? So that's pretty makes pretty much uh, pretty good sense. Now, so on May fourth, the Times ran a piece about Ramirez's state of mind, saying he was kind of like gloomy and distraught, and that he just didn't want to put on a defense because that's what it was seeming like. Um, now, the lawyers told the judge that this actually was a possibility, although they had advised him otherwise. Um, Tynan, the judge, granted a recess. Here's another delay, you know, so they could talk further with their client. And then ultimately, it was decided to go on with the trial. And they brought in themselves 38 witnesses. Now, the defense team essentially claimed that the prosecution's evidence was inconclusive or defective. So that was, they didn't have much of a defense here. And they took note of the fact that there were many fingerprints at the crime scenes that remained unidentified and that hairs and blood samples were uh, were found that not belong to the victims or Ramirez. And in the surprise move, um, they had Ramirez's father uh, take the stand and say that Richard had been in El Paso, Texas. So here's a little monkey wrench for eight days starting around May 24th, 1985. Now, a rape victim had placed him in her home on Memorial Day. And another attack, which had ended in a murder, had also occurred between that May 29th and June 1st. So the defense attorneys also found uh, testimony to the effect that police officers had covertly alerted witnesses to... Ramirez's position in the lineup after his arrest. So they're starting to build a little bit of momentum here in this trial. Um, psycho- the psychologist Elizabeth uh, Loftus, an expert in eyewitness testimony from the University of Washington, 
testified that uh, stress of, ass- of assault may have affected the witness's ability to accurately recall details. Um, she also pointed out that, you know, like errors are more likely um, when the attacker and victim are of different races. I, I guess that's scientifically proven. I, I don't really know. Um, she also pointed out that um, that she conceded, basically, I guess, under cross-examination that those victims who had more um, than just like that fleeting exposure, just just him, just that little pass by, um, to Ramirez were most li- uh, more were more likely to be accurate. So that's kind of a win for the prosecution, probably into the jurors, if I if I had to guess. So on May on May twenty fifth, uh, defense witness Sandra uh, Hotchkiss also claimed now um, to have been with uh, Ramirez's accomplice in a numerous of daytime burglaries in nineteen eighty five some of which just happened to occur during this alleged murder spree. So that's kind of crazy. You got another criminal coming for her saying, well, he was kind of just committing crimes with me here. And she also said that none of these incidents were violent. And she added that he was kind of jumpy and amateurish, which we kind of know based on his killings. He was kind of amateurish. Um, but nutty, dude. And she broke uh she broke it off with him and was then later eventually arrested and convicted of other burglaries. So she was pretty amateurish herself, if you ask me. Got caught, bitch. Now throughout this phase of the trial, uh, several disturbances occurred, such as this is goes back to that satanic shit, guys. I'm telling you, charts falling off the easels. Homie Daniel Hernandez just perspiring profusely. I guess it was out of control. And then evidence was being erroneously representative. The newspapers even pointed out that not once had the defense attorneys claimed their client was even innocent. And Hernandez actually commented in the paper that they merely wanted to prove that the prosecution's case was faulty. It's one of those, you just hope that the jury says, well, I guess the prosecution sucked a little bit. So maybe there's that reasonable doubt. That's all they had. Now, rebuttal witnesses for the prosecution um, ended up, you know, they were contradicting the testimony of Ramirez's father by showing that Ramirez was in fact in Los Angeles and he was actually having some dental work on those dirty ass teeth. And that would just happen to be the same time his father said he was in El Paso. And he used an alias for this when he was getting this dental work. But a comparison of Ramirez's teeth to these charts le- uh, left no doubt. And this newspaper reporter David Hancock also contradicted the alibi by indicating that he had actually interviewed his dad in August of 1985. Um, right after they knew who he was. At which time he claimed he had not seen his son in at least two years. So there was some contradiction. Then his lawyer was allowed to actually, because of this though, his lawyer was allowed to, here's another delay, fly to Texas to seek out more witnesses who might have seen Ramirez. 
at least at this point, this jury was allowed to go on vacation until July 10th. Now, his lawyer found two witnesses, but the prosecution made the point that if he had gone by plane, Ramirez could have still made it back in time to commit both attacks. One survivor actually had identified a piece of jewelry at hers that had admittedly been found by police in his El Paso home of Ramirez's sister, yet relatives of the woman murdered in May 1985 had photos of appliances from her home that had been in Ramirez's possession. So in closing arguments that lasted for like, dude, 13 days from July 12th to the 25th, each side emphasized the weakness in the other side's case and the strength in its own. Haplin pointed out that Hernandez had raised issues that he never really substantiated. Throwing them at the jury is more, you know, just mere diversions. And then when he was finished, Ramirez turned to the courtroom and smirked. He just looked at people and just smiled. Now, the judge then took two days to instruct the jury, letting them know that a handgun was missing from the evidence inventory. So they lost a handgun here, guys. How do you fucking lose a handgun in 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 uh in evidence, guys? Come on. But they had a photograph of it. So now after uh, nearly a year, the jury finally started deliberations on July 26th with 8,000 pages of trial transcripts and 655 exhibits to consider. Now, it gets a little crazy here still because what's not crazy about this story? Within a week, one juror who kept falling asleep was replaced. How do you fall asleep? Keep falling asleep. I think she just didn't. She just didn't want to make that decision, guys. And then on August fourteenth, this girl Phyllis Singletary didn't arrive. So the judge summoned the jury and told them obviously they couldn't continue without her. And the court went on recess. Now the crazy thing is the papers reported that Miss Singletary had been shot to death in her apartment. And this news passed through the jury and eight remaining alternates like wildfire. Boy, could you imagine? They thought for sure. And obviously they could not help but wonder if Ramirez had managed this somehow from his prison cell and if he might do something similar to one of them to another one of them, or all of them. I mean, he certainly had uh, a plenty of these black-clad groupies. He had all these women, guys. He got married after the fact here. Uh, um, came to court. They came to court each day to show their support. And it was like Charles Manson cultish, you know, from 1969. Now, Judge Teenan called them into court the next day and told them that Miss Singletary 
had been shot by an abusive boyfriend. He assured them the incident was unrelated to the case. So an alternate was chosen to replace her. Although the woman was so although this alternate was so overcome with fear, dude, she couldn't even walk to her place. And even more news was forthcoming. Now Miss Singletary's boyfriend used the same weapon which with uh, which he killed her to commit suicide in a hotel. He left behind a written confession. And they had been arguing apparently over the Ramirez case. And he had become enraged by her disapproval of Ramirez's lawyers because, like, remember, they're trash. Now, the defense team took this and tried to get that to be used for a mistrial, which obviously the prosecution opposed. He's the prosecution, uh, ha- uh, Halpin said this case must not go down the drain. He insisted. And then debates emerged in the newspaper over the same issue. So everyone's talking about it. He had one psychologist believing the shooting would just unconsciously influence the jury against the defendant. However, the jury foreman, where's his degree from, assured the judge that they could continue because why wouldn't they? They want to go home, guys. They've been here two years. You know, they've been here a year. It's been a year, my bad. It's been a little over a year. And then the, and then the jury selection, so six months, so a year and a half, yeah, almost two years. When Ramirez heard this in court, he shouted that this was all fucked up and he had to be restrained. Now, he continued to act out during the rest of the jury's deliberations and saying that the trial had not been fair to him and he was allowed to waive his right to be present in court at this point. So whenever brief uh, hearings were needed, the proceedings were actually just piped into his holding cell, so he didn't even go back to court. On September 20th, almost two months after they had begun deliberation, uh, the jury finally announced that they had reached a unanimous decision. Now Ramirez elected again not to attend this reading. That was his new thing. And neither did his little stable of girlfriends that he had been collecting during the trial. Now, on each of the 43 counts, the jury voted him guilty as charged and had affirmed 19 other special circumstances that made him eligible for that death penalty. Now, upon leaving his cell, Ramirez flashed that devil sign, that two-finger horn, at photographers and made one single comment, evil. Now, the defense team asked Ramirez to assist with the penalty phase because without mitigating factors, he was obviously getting uh, condemned to death. You know, getting that chair uh, with electricity. Now, he said, dying doesn't scare me. I'll be in hell with Satan. And he told his lawyers that he would not beg. So to everyone's surprise, 
they offered zero witnesses and did not call him to plead for his life. Now, Halpin said later that this decision had caught him kind of flat-footed. And Clark simply argued before the jury that something was obviously... Now, Clark was that public defender, remember, um, that worked with Hernandez because the other dude, or, uh, didn't, dude didn't show up. Um, that, that something was obviously wrong with Ramirez and that he, the, they should be compassionate and have some sympathy even for the devil. And Halpin reviewed his arguments from the trial and urged them to give him his just desserts. <laughs> just desserts. It's kind of cool. So on uh, October 3rd, 1989, after four days of deliberation, that jury came and they had voted for death for Richard Ramirez. He was going to die. Uh, the female members were crying, bro. His little groupies. Ramirez, who was present for this, was left from the courtroom smiling. This always stuck with me uh, when I first read Richard Ramirez's story. <clears throat> this is what he said as he, uh, as he left the courtroom smiling. Big deal. Death always went with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. On November 9th, he was officially sentenced to death 19 times. Ramirez chatted with his attorney throughout. Afterward, he added to his dark image with a rather incomprehensible speech to the court. You do not understand me. I do not expect you to. You are not capable of it. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. Legions of the night. Nightbreed. Repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells within us all. He denounced the court officials as liars, haters, and parasitic worms. He said that he had been misunderstood and he was led away to eventually join the 262 inmates already on death row in San Quentin, including that freeway killer Randy Kraft, who was just sentenced, who was just sentenced a month before. When talking to police officers, he was quite curious as to whether there would be now books about him as there were about Ted Bundy and Jack the Ripper. He loved that idea. The idea that someone had made a movie. During the 1990s, Jason Moss wrote to Ramirez as part of his project he was doing to write to serial killers. And Ramirez reportedly wanted him to become a Satanist. Since Ramirez's belief seemed fundamental to his desire to be notorious and unique, it's kind of difficult to know to what degree he was sincerely devoted to Satan. Yet, it's likely that his desire to kill and the manner in which he committed his crimes had more to do with his cousin Mikey's psychological influence coupled with his notion that killing makes one a god. Of all the serial killers who have plagued the modern world, the Night Stalker was perhaps the most sensational in the way he committed his crimes. 
He was a living nightmare. A boogeyman who invaded bedrooms and tore innocent people from their dreams. His method was worthy of a Hollywood horror movie. He was a killer tailor-made for his prime hunting ground, Los Angeles. I won't come back in here again, you understand that? This trial is a joke. guys that's gonna be all for episode 10 uh i appreciate you guys listening it was very long i apologize for that it was like two hours i had it like almost three hours i uh, recorded it last night I, I cut out about an hour um i know some of you guys are probably like what happened to richard ramirez we don't even know if he died or not you didn't even touch on that i apologize i know i didn't um but just real quick he died on june 7th 2013 in jail on death row he spent 23 years there um he did not die from the chair he died from um, B cell lymphoma. So he spent 23 years on death row, didn't die. Go ahead and just Google his, his jail career. Cause it's pretty interesting. He did some interviews, said some pretty cool things. If you listen this far, I teased that night prowler song by ACDC at the very beginning of this episode. I'm gonna go ahead and play the whole song for you guys at the end of this. Um, so go ahead and listen to that if you want. Um, it's a pretty good song. You know, it's, it, it has a lot to do with, um, his mentality and how he, how he grew up. So, um, you know, we referenced it a lot in this episode. Um, other than that, man, uh, tell your friends to like and subscribe on Chromatic Distortion. Just tell them that, hey, you know this dude who uh, who does this podcast. And it's not that good, but it's a little funny. And every once in a while, I laugh. So go just go ahead and check it out. We got 450 listeners. Let's, let's, let's make it 500 um, tomorrow. So without any further ado, fuck it. Let's end this bitch and listen to that song. This is Corey Caesar with Chromatic Distortion. Episode 10, Serial Killer Edition, Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion.
Spine. And someone walks across your grave 
Shazwa. Nalo, nalo.